Lone Star Gun Talk is a Lone Star Gun Rights production. Original music and hosted by Derek Wills. Copyright Lone Star Gun Rights 2019. Gunners, welcome to the podcast. This is Derek Wills, your humble host of Lone Star Gun Talk, the official podcast of Lone Star Gun Rights. Go ahead and chime in on the uh, man already right out of the gate. Eric says every single gun law is an infringement. Uh, I uh, absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Uh, Charles, hello. How are you? We also got uh, Paul and Susan in here. Um, awesome, uh, Wayne. Uh, Tara, man, everybody's fired up today. I love it. I am fired up as well. We are going to get into all sorts of stuff today. I know that uh, we're starting this live stream just a wee bit early, um, just because of the fact that I think this one's going to go a bit long. Um, so we're going to talk. We're going to talk Dan Crenshaw. Um, we're going to talk about Donald Trump briefly. Uh, I don't see the need to really get into that too terribly deeply because it's. Well, it's it's nothing that's really new news because he's been touting gun control for, well, I guess ever since uh, he got elected. Whenever he started with uh, the Fix Nix Act, and then, uh, man, uh, comments are just just rolling in. It's not a debate; it's a right sellout. Oh my God! Yes. All right. Cool. I am really glad that y'all are fired up today. This is gonna be a good show. I feel it in my bones. Definitely gonna be way better than last week. After I took a month off and was just struggling to get through and had probably the driest show known to man reading legal briefs. I don't know what I was thinking with that. That was uh, that was a uh, that was a mistake. So hopefully this is going to be an exponentially better uh, show today. Um, okay, so where should we start? We, we're covering a couple of things besides Dan Crenshaw. We're also, if anybody's familiar with the H3 podcast, uh, they are a very, very popular podcast. Uh, they are based in California. They talk everything from politics to really anything. And they had Andrew Yang on their show this past week, and Andrew Yang is running for president uh, under the Democratic ticket. He's one of the 1,232 members of the Democratic Party running for president in 2020. And so, um, uh, yeah, he was on their show, and mainly he was there talking about uh, universal basic income and how he wants to give every American uh, $1,000 per month for life. Uh, but he goes into gun control, and that's where our topic of uh, our focus is going to be is what he said about gun control. Um, so we have uh, we we need to talk about you know we're going to start off with Dan Crenshaw. Uh, if you did not see it, this was a tweet that Dan Crenshaw had sent following uh, following El Paso and. Uh, uh, Ohio, I forget which city, uh, Dayton, I think it was in Dayton. Uh, he says, the solutions aren't obvious, even if we pretend they are, but we must try. Let's start with the TAPS Act. Maybe also implement state red flag laws, or as we're calling them, red coat laws. 
uh, or gun violence restraining order. Stop them before they can hurt somebody. He got a lot of flack for that. A lot of flack. And rightfully so, because, well, first of all, calling for red flag laws at the state level is disgusting. Um, red flag laws have already resulted in at least one innocent person being killed by law enforcement because he refused to turn in his firearms when they showed up at his door and said, hey, we're here to take your guns, even though you haven't done anything to warrant such a, you know, such a seizure. We don't have a warrant. We'd, uh, we were just told that you might be a threat. And, uh, so they ended up making him a threat and, um... Uh, injected him with lead until he passed away. Um, that is at least one instance that we know of. There's no telling how many more those there have been because, well, the fallout, the media fallout from that story was was awful. So, well, the media's got to spin the narrative. So they're probably going to say some drug dealer or something like that from now on. I I'm not into. I'm really not into a lot of conspiracies. Uh, at, like at all, but whenever it comes to the media, the media definitely has plays favorites and spins things to get ratings. Uh, it, it because that's that's you know that's how they make their revenue. So let's take a look first at the Taps Act. What is the Taps Act? I mean, Dan Crenshaw linked it. It must be okay, right? Well, it was authored by U.S. Congressman Brian Babin of the 36th district of the wonderful state of Texas. And well, if a Texas Republican is uh is is the one that's well, I guess writing this, then that's got to be great, right? HR 838, the Threat Assessment Prevention and Safety Act. Oh, with a name like that, it has to be great. It's got threat assessment, we're preventing threats. And it's about safety, so it, it's got to be it's got to be just wonderful. It, it's not gun control; it's safety, guys. Okay, it's safety. It's not gun control. Um. Well, let's see what uh, let's see what this act actually does. This is the one page summary of the Taps Act, and I'm going to bring up the actual bill too. We're going to kind of go over it just a little bit uh, because there are some things in this bill that are absolutely atrocious. Um, checking in on the comments here. And uh, Paul says that they're talking about body armor now. Uh, of course, because why not? Um, you know, better stock up on your AR-500 uh, body armor. Uh, I recommend at least a level three uh, personally, but uh, to each their own. If you want to do level four, by all means, do that. Uh, and AR-500 also makes a level three plus uh, in, case you're, uh, in case you're interested. So let's get back to this. This is the one-page brief of the TAPS Act. And it's very vague if you notice. So, so let, let's get down to the, to the nuts and bolts. Contents of the National Strategy Recommendation. So it, it, it establishes a Joint Behavioral Threat Assessment and Management Task Force. We're task forcing this away, all right? We're going to task force away evil, and this is how we're going to do it. This is what they need to come up with. They need to develop and implement a national strategy for preventing targeted violence through behavioral threat assessment, and it must include, but it's not, it, it must include, but it's not limited to, so they can go beyond this scope. 
the most effective utilization of existing infrastructure and workforce, a behavioral threat assessment management unit support program. So I guess if the federal government is going to help the state governments, right? Uh, training, because, you know, the state government's going to establish their own uh, behavioral threat assessment, uh, I, I, I guess, task force, right? And the federal government's entity is going to train them on how to do that. Uh, school violence prevention program. So we're going to have the federal government teaching the state governments uh, how to prevent threats at public schools. Um, okay. Uh, and... and uh, a mental health service professional assessment to ensure mental health service professionals are in, are equipped to collaborate, advise, and consult in the behavioral threat assessment and management process. What? Okay. Well, um, I don't know about y'all, but this is already sounding bad. And this isn't even the actual bill. This is the one-page summary of the bill of each individual section, right? Um, is this red flag? It doesn't say. That's the thing. It doesn't specifically talk about um, uh, extreme risk protection orders. It doesn't talk about uh, seizures or ex parte hearings or what have you. It talks about establishing a task force for assessing behaviors of individuals this sounds worse than a red flag. I mean, th this is the government evaluating you as an individual and then making an assessment from there. Red flag and to be in the awkward position of having to defend a red flag law. Red flag at least requires somebody to report that, to report you as a threat for whatever reason. This is the government doing it. This is this is this is worse than red flag. So what else does this do? And this is probably the worst part of this whole bill. Behavioral threat assessment man and management grant program establishes a grant that will be awarded to aid in the implementation, operation, and support, which means that when California comes up with their own threat assessment and management program, your tax dollars as a Texan, as a Louisianan, as an Oklahoman, or as a New Yorker, or wherever you might live, your tax dollars that are going to the federal government are then going to go to California to help them implement this uh, program. And then it's going to do that for every state that implements it, that meets their certain requirements. So this is just a bribery scheme. The, the federal government is taking your tax dollars, our tax dollars, and then spreading them out and bribing states to implement these programs. Well, why wouldn't they? Oh, free money from the federal government that I don't have to worry about you know, really paying for any of it or, mo or the bulk of it? Oh, well, um, sure, sign me up. I like money. I like money. Let, let's, do, let's, let's do this. Oh, wow. So here's the actual bill, and uh, there are a couple of things that I want to highlight. This is H.R. 838, uh, may be cited as the Threat Assessment Prevention and Safety Act of 2019. And we're going to go down to page 14 here. I probably should have gone down beforehand, so that way you're not 
So here's the contents of the national strategy uh, recommendations. And it, it says it shall include each of the following existing infrastructure plans, unit support program, um, a training program, and, and check this out. Recommendations relating to a behavioral threat assessment and management training program, which may train officers and employees of federal, state, local, and tribal government agencies and private entities. So this is not only uh, governmental, but the federal government is going to be bribing private entities in order to uh, implement these programs. That's scary. In community-based, multidisciplinary, and multi-jurisdictional behavioral threat, as threat assessment and management. Uh, here's the school violence protection uh, prevention program that uh, I mentioned, as well as uh, the mental health service professional assessment. Recommendations relating to the involvement of a mental health service professional to collaborate, advise, and consult in a behavioral threat assessment process as permitted under the, under the applicable federal and state laws. So the federal government is establishing guidelines on how mental health service professionals will be forced to uh, collaborate, advise, and consult the government on an individual. This sounds like it's a violation of HIPAA laws already. Um, here comes Blackwater to take your stuff. I'm just kind of going through all of the uh, all of the comments here. Uh, Paul says he's going to report Beto. Um, you know, Beto says that he's a gun owner. I, I, I mean, he might be, but Beto's not going to be. Uh, he won't even get looked at. So uh, you know, that's that's just silliness right there Paul um, he's not a threat to anybody I promise okay so the next thing that I wanted to highlight is on uh, page 19 um, right line, line 11 okay contracting services this is under the section for implementation of the national strategy the secretary shall enter into contracts with public agencies or private or private entities there's private entities again with expertise in behavioral threat assessment and management to assist with the implementation of the national strategy. So you're going to have the state strategies, right? And then you're going to have the national strategy, and we're going to bring in a bunch of private entities to consult with what makes somebody a threat, just based off of their behavior. Uh, they're going to create a website, which is great. And then finally, uh, page 21, this, this is where things get really bad. Behavioral Threat and Assessment and Management Grant Program. Now, they are going to establish uh, matching funds. An eligible entity that receives a grant under this subsection shall provide a cash contribution in amount that is not less than 10% of the amount of the grant. So basically, they're going to, uh, the federal government is going to uh, pay for 90% of these, uh, th this, this plan, this national strategy, if you will. Um, and here is an eligible entity defined. Again, something that is just red flag, pardon the, fu pardon the pun. In this section, the term eligible entity means a state, a tribal organization, an educational entity, a unit of local government, or a non-governmental organization. 
so uh, yeah let's fully support this mr dan crenshaw this sounds like a great bill this sounds like it's so it's full of absolute rainbows and unicorns i cannot believe that he would well let me let me retract that i can believe this this didn't surprise me at, at all i know it surprised a lot of you um but I had some uh, some information before he got elected that led me to believe that he was going to go down this road eventually. Uh, but this... Uh, oh, uh, Susan asks, do we know who wrote or advised on the TAPS Act? Yes. Brian Babin of, of Texas House District 36, Congressional District. Brian Babin, a Republican of Texas, wrote this bill. This is something that is... That, this is atrocious, and this isn't even the red flag thing. Um, so I, here's one thing that I want to I, I want to explore too. If you didn't see this, I'm going to play this uh, little snippet in its entirety uh, because I I want you to hear from Dan Crenshaw himself what uh, what he is saying because he got so blasted by people for even mentioning red flag laws. That he is feeling some political heat like he's never felt before. And I'm glad that people were responding that way. And, but the thing is, he's trying to spin it like, oh, this isn't gun control. This is, this, this is good. This is good. It, it, we're protecting due process, right? I'm going to play this for you in its entirety. It's a few minutes long. But I want you to hear what he had to say. Check this out. Wow, what a week. So earlier this week... President Trump um, indicated his support for something called red flag laws. I stated on Twitter that maybe we should consider them at the state level. Maybe we should have a conversation about it, and it should be a conversation. Unfortunately, that's not what happened. What came out of it instead was hate-filled comments, lots of emotion, a lot of anger, a lot of memes. Uh, a lot of memes, by the way, which could be improved. Okay, But that's not the point. The point is, is that clearly even the words red flag law just emotionally triggered a lot of people. It made you guys really mad at me. And uh, it seemed that no amount of explanation was able to quell your fears or, or convince you otherwise and convince you that somehow the president and I had not betrayed you. That is not true, of course. And it's sad that many of you think that it really is. But I did have some good conversations, some good private conversations with a lot of you. And this is what I found out. Clearly, when we say red flag laws, you guys stop listening. You can't hear what we're suggesting um, because understandably, you automatically assume that we are just agreeing with the left's version of that law. And we all know that the left's version would not be good. It would not protect due process. But as it turns out, that isn't what we're talking about at all. Um, at its heart, what we're talking about is the ability to confiscate weapons when there is clear evidence that violence is about to be committed. It's that simple. And this isn't that controversial. What is controversial is how that due process is protected. And I think that's where a lot of these concerns are. Making sure that due process could not be abused is at the heart of any conservative solution to the supposed red flag laws and our version of what those would look like, I have laid out specific safeguards that would have to be in place for us to support any type of red flag law. Okay, among them would be clear and convincing evidence, punishment for false accusations, right to attorney and cross-examination, 
and limited standing so that not just anybody can accuse you. For instance, not just a neighbor, not just an ex. It has to be somebody with standing, maybe a family member or maybe only police officers. We've got a great study by Cato Institute that uh, lays this out exactly. Here's the thing. I understand your fears about bad red flag laws. Red flag law is a general concept. There can be good ones and there can be bad ones. You should be against the bad ones, as I am. The whole purpose of what the president did and what I am doing in trying to start a conversation about this is so that we take control of the narrative and propose solutions that actually do protect due process rights and ensure that we aren't on the sidelines when Democrats are proposing blatantly unconstitutional laws that would not protect due process. The last thing is this. No one is saying this is definitely the solution. It's a conversation. I haven't come out in support of any particular bill or state law. It's a conversation that conservatives have actually been having for a very long time. It's not new at all. And it definitely does not deserve the emotional reaction it has gotten. We are better than that. Let's be better than that. We're better than that, y'all. We should be better than that. What a condescending thing to say. Uh, you know, okay. So he said some things in here. First of all, he is an outright liar. He said that he has not come out in support of any particular bill. Um, really? Because I'm pretty sure that you sent this tweet here that says that you support or that we should try this tweet right here. Let's start with the TAPS Act. Maybe implement state red flag laws. That is in support of a, of a specific bill and then possible support for other bills at the state level. So, Dan Crenshaw, I'm sorry, but you're a freaking liar. You said that you didn't come out in support of any law, specific bill. Yes, you did. So don't try and spin this in a way that makes you look good. And then you said something, you, you slyly went through and you said some things that most people, and it's not their fault, but most people would not know the specifics about what you meant. You said that you would that your proposals the ones that you would support one would require somebody with standing so not just a, a rando person maybe a family member right because family members would never ever in this country of 327 million people would never ever try and screw over another family member got it but you said something very specific you said that would it would require clear and convincing evidence now, to the average person, that sounds like, okay, yeah, that sounds like something that you, you would find in a, in a criminal court. It's not. Clear and convincing evidence is a very specific legal phrase. If you've listened to this show for, for a period of time, uh, I have gone into this before. But in case you're new, there are three uh, burdens of proof in any court case. This goes for civil and criminal. The first phrase that is used is a preponderance of evidence. So in a preponderance of evidence, again, it sounds pretty good, but a preponderance of evidence, the ruling is based entirely 
on whether or not there the evidence suggests that it was more likely than it happened than than it didn't. So basically, there is a fifty one percent chance that what the person is being accused of did what they were being accused of. There's a fifty one percent chance. So in most civil cases, uh, a preponderance of evidence is what's required. This is why you don't need a unanimous uh, ruling from a jury in a civil case to find that a, d a defendant was at fault. You only need a majority because the majority of the jurors said, yeah, I think that this is more likely that it happened than didn't. This is also the typical burden of proof whenever it comes to asset forfeiture laws, as well as um, uh, as well as any ex parte hearing uh, for most red flag laws. And then there's a second version. Well, actually, let's go to the other extreme, which is beyond a reasonable doubt. This is the one that everybody seems to know. You must be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that. This person committed this crime. This is the burden of proof that is required whenever it comes to uh, whenever it comes to criminal cases. Any and all criminal cases requires a a burden of proof that is beyond a reasonable doubt. This means there is a ninety nine percent likelihood that the person being accused of committing that crime committed that crime because you can never have a full one hundred percent right. Then you have the middle which is clear and convincing evidence. This means that it is, it is a burden of proof that is in between a preponderance of evidence and beyond a reasonable doubt. I have seen that, uh, I have seen a couple of red flag uh, bills that have been written, including the one that was filed here in Texas that did, uh, that did say clear and convincing evidence. Um, but clear and convincing evidence is not beyond a reasonable doubt. There is still over the, uh, roughly a 25% likelihood that the person being accused of what they're being accused of is being falsely accused of whatever they're being accused of. So the fact that he said those words, clear and convincing evidence, should be a red flag to anybody. Anytime you hear the words preponderance of evidence or clear and convincing evidence, do not fall for them at face value. They are very specific legal phrases that have very specific meanings whenever it comes to case law. So that is a, that is a tip of his hand because, as Paul points out, a political speechwriter wrote that. And he's probably right. Um... Because Dan is facing a lot of heat for this, so he probably um, he probably got smacked around a bit on. Well, I know that he got smacked around a bit on social media uh, because of this. Um, and then there was there is one other th point that I want to bring up. Um, I seem to be having some issues with the live stream here. Hang on, just one sec. Uh, everything seems to be good, but. There's one other thing. Hopefully, you guys can catch up whenever, whenever we, uh, whenever it comes back in. One thing that he brings up is that we're talking about seizing weapons whenever there's a threat. There is already laws against conspiracy. Okay, if you are conspiring, if you are planning an attack, you're planning a robbery, you're planning a heist, 
you don't actually have to commit those heists in order to be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal court of law that would send you to prison on a conspiracy charge. The state of Texas has conspiracy laws. The federal government has conspiracy laws. You don't actually have to commit an act in order to be thrown in prison for conspiring to commit that act. If somebody is too dangerous to be left out in society with their firearms, then why in the hell are they in society? If somebody is planning an attack to shoot up a Walmart, to shoot up a mall, to shoot up a school, or whatever, if somebody is planning that and you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this person is planning to execute people, to blow up a building, or what have you, why in the hell are you not charging them and convicting them of conspiracy to do so? And throw their ass in prison. But no, we have to go through and have this conversation where we say, oh, this person might do something. So instead of charging them with conspiracy, we're just going to take their guns. You honestly think that somebody that was planning on doing something is all of a sudden just not going to because the, the government came and took their guns? No, it's far more likely that what's going to happen is innocent people are going to get flagged under these red coat laws and they're going to have their firearms taken away from them and they have never once committed a crime. I am tired of these Republicans coming through and saying, yeah, gun control, it's, it's okay because we're doing it. It's not a, it's not a big deal. Re gun control is okay when Republicans do it. And I'm tired of people making excuses for them. You know what? You should you should listen to Dan Crenshaw and what he had to say, how he's explaining it. It makes perfect sense. No, it does not. This is dangerous. This is how we ended up in the current place that we're at. This is how we end, ended up with the National Firearms Act, the Federal Firearms Act of 1938, the Gun Control Act of 1968, the Firearm Owners Protection Act of 1986, the Undetectable Firearms Act of 1988, the Gun-Free School Zones Act of 1990, and the frickin' Assault Weapons Ban of 1993. And this is how we end up with bump stock bans. And this is how we end up with suppressors going away. And this is how we end up where the only gun that you have the right to freaking own is a single shot Derringer. I am tired of these politicians and I am tired of these these, these limp-wristed organizations providing cover for Republicans who sell out our natural rights. And I am certainly tired of Democrats, well, because they're Democrats, but at least they're freaking honest about what they want to do for the most part. We'll get to Andrew Yang here in a minute, but... Um, and he's, you know, bloviating as well as as he does. Um, but yeah, they're all sellouts. They are, as Sterling says, they are they are sellouts. The and you, you know what? I, I'm going to take that back. I don't think they're sellouts. I think that this is something that they just don't care about, which is why they're so quick to be like, yeah, sure, it sounds like a good idea. And this is how we end up with problems like this. This is how we end up with, uh, oh, I forgot about the Brady Bill, the Brady Act of 93. Uh, yeah, I forgot about that. Because that's worked great, right? Background check. This is another thing that really chaps my ass. Because, and I'm, I'm sorry for the language, guys. I, I'm, 
I, I'm trying to keep this uh, this rant profanity free, and I know that ass isn't a horrible word, but I'm I'm really trying here, guys. One thing that really upsets me is when people say that they support background checks. Background checks don't do anything. They say, oh, I don't think felons should uh, have a gun. Okay, sounds good on paper, but have you given that any thought? Did you know that there's a great book out there that says three felon that's entitled Three Felonies a Day that highlights how the average American commits three felonies a day and doesn't even know it? Because the laws are written so vaguely that you could indict anybody. The, 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 the expression is real. You could indict a ham sandwich. And then whenever you find yourself being indicted for a felony charge that you didn't even know was illegal because of how vaguely worded the, the law is written and it's now applied to you, then next thing you know, you're a felon. Okay, well, just violent felon. Somebody who's, who's who, if, if they've killed somebody or they've robbed somebody, they just shouldn't have their guns. Okay, why are they released if they're too dangerous to be released? Why is somebody that made a major mistake in their past, let's say they're 18 years old running with the wrong crowd, they hold up a, a, a they hold up a, a, a stop and rob, and then they get busted. They do 20 years, and they really realize, you know what? I want to turn my life around. I want to, um, I want to, I want to make an honest living. I want to contribute to society. I want to do X, Y, and Z. Well, now you, you, they are forbidden from possessing the tools necessary to defend their life, liberty, and property. I'm sorry. I thought that the, that bearing arms was a natural God-given right. If that's the case, then the government doesn't have the authority to say who can and can't exercise it. Either, either gun ownership is a natural right given to us by God, or it's a governmental privilege that was given to us by government on the condition that we act a certain way. Which is it? You can't have both. Because if it's a natural right, if it is a God-given right, then only nature, only God, has the authority to take that away from anybody. So how do you determine which one it is? How do you determine whether it's a God-given right or a government-given privilege? Well, here's the litmus test. Is your life right now, are you alive because of the fact that the government says you can be alive? Or is that something that is inherent to you as being a human being? Did God say you have the right to be alive? Does nature put, put forth uh, this right as you have the right to be alive? I don't care who says otherwise. If that answer is government, then I have no idea what to say to you. But if that answer is God, if that answer is nature, whatever your belief system is, then okay, how do you defend yourself? How do you defend your life? How do you defend your liberty and your property if you're limited by the uh, in the tools that you determine to be necessary to def to adequately and effectively defend them? Well, if you have the right to life, but you only have the right to a uh, hunting knife to as a means of defending it, then I'm sorry, the government has sentenced you to death. They have taken your right to life away because they have taken your right to defend the tools that would be necessary to adequately defend your life against any threat that you could possibly imagine.
Well, since the most substantial threat that I could ever possibly imagine is the United States government turning tyrannical and and going door to door to kick down door uh, kick down doors and seize weapons, well, then I have the right, the natural right, to meet them with equal force. Should that happen, the likelihood of that happen uh, happening, well, uh, it's going up. It's still pretty slim at this point, but um, it doesn't matter. Natural rights aren't contingent upon the likelihood that you'll need to exercise it in that particular way. It's how I determine the threat to be. It's how I feel it uh, is necessary to, to defend my life. It's how you feel is necessary to defend your life. And the same applies to the, to the license to carry. Oh, you can't you can't defend your life outside your own property with unless you get a permission slip. Right. You want to hear something? This is a little personal matter that that y'all might find interesting. My wife does not have an LTC. And she found on the internet uh 2 days ago that somebody found a post-it note where they're building the new Ranger Stadium that said if you thought El Paso was bad, wait until this Saturday 8:10. My wife was freaked the hell out about that. And she was going shopping out in Dallas. And she was telling me how, how uneasy she felt. And I said, do you want to take one of my guns? Knowing that she doesn't have an LTC. But I thought, you know, I, I would much rather her um, be a, have the means of protecting herself than follow the law. Given how, given how her anxiety was flaring up. And she said no. Because that would make her more anxious because now she's wondering if law enforcement is going to come and arrest her for carrying a weapon for self-freaking-defense outside of the home. Alright, so I'm going to end that rant right there. Uh, and now I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to transition a bit. I'm sorry that I went long on the, on the preaching. Uh, well, not really because that's what makes this show uh, fun. But I'm going to go and I'm going to talk about the H3 podcast and Andrew Yang. For those of you who don't know, the, the H3 podcast is, is a very, very popular podcast. They uh, upload to YouTube and every other platform that you can imagine. They have millions of subscribers. They make a boat ton, boat ton of money, um, and they're very popular. Uh, they had Andrew Yang on, and he wanted to talk about gun control. So I'm going. there are two clips in particular that I want to play. And I'm going to address each clip individually. I'm going to play the first clip first, and then we'll go through it really quickly. Uh, again, it's a bit long, so kind of bear with us. Uh, you can, I mean, it's it's not dead air, so I mean, there's that. But here is Andrew Yang and the host of H3 talking about uh, gun control. Check this out. I want to ask you, first of all, why why do you think all these mass shootings are happening to begin with? To me, it's such a multifaceted problem uh, from top to bottom. And so the things that we're focused on right now are in some ways the most immediate uh, problems, which is our political rhetoric and climate has demonized and vilified people on the other side and makes it seem mm -hmm. like somehow violence uh, might be appropriate in some circumstance. Certainly the fact that we have so many guns in this country, we're at almost uh, 400 million firearms, almost one for every man, woman, and child. Now, that gun ownership is concentrated in uh, 
the hands of a relatively small number of Americans. One of the stats I saw was that 3% of Americans own 50% of the guns. Wow. So that's like a lot of guns per person in yeah. that 3%. Yeah. But 3% in a country our size is still 10 million Americans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the fact that the NRA is making it impossible to pass any reasonable gun safety laws, uh, even though the vast majority of Americans support right. background checks and red flag laws and, and uh, obvious safety measures. Uh, and then the deeper problems are around uh, this real this loss of any kind of uh, sense of purpose or uh, in, like the direction, mm. where unfortunately it makes people more subject to hateful ideologies that can spread much more virulently on the internet now than they could have even... 12, 15 years ago. They're finding, they're finding communities that reinforce their beliefs. Yeah, this internet pioneer named Jaron Lanier uh, pointed out that negative ideas and sentiments spread much more powerfully on the internet than mm-hmm. positive ones. Mm-hmm. If you think about your own experience in social media, oh, yeah. it's kind of true. It's like the toxic things like to sort of uh, take on a life of their own. Mm. And so that's helping fuel this set of problems. Uh, so that there are problems up and down, uh, and we have to try and attack each one in turn. Uh, but unfortunately, it's going to be with us for a long time because, again, we're talking about a country with uh, 300 million-plus firearms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's dark. I mean, even if we pass some of these gun safety laws, which we 100% should and will, uh, we need to have a perpetual buyback in effect. Uh, in my opinion, where we just say, look, anytime you want to sell your gun, like we'll buy it off you like that mm-hmm. <laughs> because we need to try and get the supply down over time. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Why are people feeling so purpose? Uh... So uh, there was a lot to digest there. And uh, obviously he is way out of left field. Uh, <laughs> Sue says, I wonder how the 3% got their name. Uh, I will stand with the threepers. You know, I will too. God bless you, Sue. Seriously. Um, so there's a lot that he talked about there, and I want to kind of just go through a few of them point by point. He says that the NRA has never been, uh, has made it impossible to have any real conversation about gun control and has never supported gun control, et cetera, et cetera, except for the fact that the NRA has supported every single federal gun control law on the books currently. They supported the National Firearms Act. They supported the Gun Control Act. They supported the Federal Firearms Act. They supported the Undetectable Firearms Act, the FOPA, uh, the Gun-Free School Zones Act. They initially opposed the uh, the Brady Handgun Violence Protection Act, which established the background check system. They initially opposed that, but then uh, the Brady campaign and the NRA came together and they found a compromise, and so they ended up supporting it in the end. And now they're providing cover for Republicans because that's what they do. Uh, so, so that talking point, it, it, re- it just makes me laugh every time I hear a leftist talk about how the NRA is this evil organization and how they have never been uh, one to compromise on gun rights. And that's literally all they've ever been good for. Uh, he talks about how the ma- vast majority of Americans support uh, red flag laws and background checks. And, you, you know, to be honest, I don't think that he's wrong in this. I think that his figure of 80 to 90 percent might be a little skewed. But I think that a majority of Americans do support these laws. The reason is because they're not invested in this. It's not going to affect them 
personally. At least they don't think that it will. Uh, they might be some of many of them might be gun owners. The thing is, most people have lives to live where they cannot spend every waking moment rallying around a particular issue. They go to work, they come home, they take care of their kids and their wife or what have you, and they might turn on the news, uh, you know, at ten o'clock and go to bed, and then rinse and repeat because that's what they need to do. That they they got to do what they got to do, and that's what they got to do. And so I'm not faulting people for being ignorant on this topic, but I think that the majority of Americans do support these laws because of the fact that they're ignorant about them because they don't have any, anything invested in them. And that's something that we need to change. We need to, we need to control the, the dialogue. We need to control the narrative. And we need to tell people, how, one, how dangerous these, these laws are, and two, how ineffective they are for their, imply, their original intent. The intent is to bring down shootings, bring down homicides. But nothing has ever actually been a result of that. They, it's not, they don't work, ever. And not to mention that homicide is an is a incredibly rare way to die in this country, but I digress. He highlighted how 3% of the population own, three, uh, own 50% of the guns. And I, I have seen something similar to that. I'm not entirely... Uh, I, I don't have that statistic memorized. That could be true. Uh, I know I've heard something like that. And uh, to be honest, that's great. But he, if you paid close attention to what he said, if you're listening to the, the replay of this, go back and re-listen to that little snippet. Listen to what he said very closely as it related to how many guns were owned. Because he talked about a perpetual buyback program. Because he said that he wanted to attack each problem, quote-unquote, and it included how many guns there were. Well, the thing is, the 50% of guns that are owned by 3% of the population, they're not shooting anybody up. So how is that a problem? It's only a problem if you're a member of the government who doesn't like the private citizenry owning firearms. He tipped his hand whenever he said that, because he doesn't like the idea of private citizens owning firearms. Go back and listen to it again. Pay close attention. Listen to it two or three times. He talks about it. How he how he says that the problem, one of the problems is how many guns we have in civilian hands. He doesn't like that. It makes him feel uneasy. Uh, and he said that there needs to be a perpetual buyback to get the supply down. That makes him uncomfortable. An armed population makes him uncomfortable, which is exactly the freaking reason why everyone should own a firearm or five. Government should feel uncomfortable by an armed citizenry because that keeps them in check. That's how you preserve life, liberty, and property. Thomas Jefferson, who is my spirit animal, has famously been quoted as saying, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And that's kind of what he meant. Uh, yeah, it takes a population to be informed 
on the subjects and understand what their government is doing as being part of that eternal vigilance. But the other part of that is you need to be able to be vigilant from a standpoint of putting it back in its place should it need to be put back in its place. Hell, Thomas Jefferson said several times throughout his life that he thought that uh, that uh, revolutions should happen regularly. He is famously quoted as saying that the Constitution should be thrown out every 19 years, every generation, because the 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 uh, the population, the newer population, should not be subject to the same uh, contract that the previous generation was uh, was put into. Because they had no say in said contract. Now, it's important to note here that when he says the Constitution, he's not talking about the Bill of Rights. He's talking about the form of government. He was an adamant believer in natural rights. And, it, like, to the point where he says natural rights are something where if the entire population were to say, tell an individual that they did not have the natural right to do that, he should ignore them. Okay? Thomas Jefferson was the man. And that, and he essentially said that they, they, that we needed to have a revolution every now and again, or at minimum, uh, reform the government from the ground up every 19 years. Could you imagine if we reformed the government every 19 years, had a had a purge of the government every generation? Oh, that'd be fantastic. I would I would be all all over that. Um, now there would be some aspects of it that would be a little bit, uh, scary because of the unknown factor, but that's a whole nother topic. All right. So I'm going to play this second clip of Andrew Yang. Um, this happened later in the show. They start talking more about universal basic income and how, uh, rainbows and unicorns, everything's going to be whenever they tax the hell out of the tech industry. Uh, if you want a good laugh, it's at least worth listening to. Uh, but Anyway, check this check this clip out. This is the this is the last gun control clip from that episode. Um, we were talking about gun control. We got we got off that really really quickly somehow, but I did want to ask you this to circle back to that. Um, it's 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 a complicated issue. You say that most Americans want uh, common sense gun laws. It does seem like a party issue where most conservatives. Uh, there's kind of this echo chamber of people who are saying, don't restrict us. The government wants to take all of our guns. I mean, there's propaganda. But but how do you how do you get around the Second Amendment? Like the wording of it specifically says, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Do you intended that the authors of that uh, meant for there to be no restrictions on it at all? Because it does say, shall not be infringed. So how do you interpret that line? Well, to me, you have to think of the intent at the time. And at that moment, they could not foresee automatic weapons that could uh, kill dozens of Americans in very, very short periods of time. For them, bare arms meant, you know, a single shot, <laughs> musket or rifle to make sure that, you know, like you, you can't um, uh, be completely marginalized uh, in you know, your own town or in your own country. So I'm for adhering to the Second Amendment in the sense that there are many, many law-abiding, gun-owning Americans, and they have that right, and that, that right's going to continue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's they're, they're strong propaganda, because what you always see is people basically saying they want to take all of our guns away. 
Yeah, that, that is the argument. And that to me is because if you look at the numbers, 80 to 90 percent of Americans on both sides of the aisle agree that we should have background checks for gun owners. They agree that we should not have people who are uh, um, criminally violent or uh, have some other red flag associated with their record uh, be allowed to, to buy guns. <laughs> yeah. So the vast majority of Americans on both sides of the aisle, but you're right that there's a passionate subgroup. And it goes back to what I said before, 3% of Americans own 50% of guns. Right. I have a feeling that's a very passionate 3%. <laughs> <laughs> right. What I wonder too is when this was written, were citizens allowed to own cannons or other, you know, weaponry of more massive destruction? Do you know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. And I don't know the answer to that. Uh, and, and today, too, I mean, this is morphed in a particular way because if the purpose is to defend yourself against government incursion, I mean, at this point, like, our government owns things bigger than cannons. You you're, <laughs> well, <laughs> like, and any AK-47 or whatever you've got, I mean, the government, if they want, you're, that's not going to make a difference. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that this is like, a, to me, something that has strayed from the original <laughs> intent yeah, of, of, the, yeah. of the framework. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, and so, um, talking about how there were only single shot weapons, huh? Anybody know what this is? This, if you just look at the top with the Google, I put in the Google puckle gun. The puckle gun was invented, uh, I believe, in uh. The 1660s, um, and it was it was typically a ship-mounted gun, but uh, you could see that it was essentially the predecessor to the Gatling gun. And oh, here's a here's a drawing. Check this out. The date on this one is 1718. Okay, I was wrong on that. So 1718. Remind me again of. What year was the United States of America founded? I, I forget. Uh, it was like 1776 or something like that. I, I think that, that that came after 1718, right? I, I'm not good at math. Um, so if, if it 1718, that came before 1776, I believe. Uh, so if you're listening to the audio-only version... You should definitely put in the Google um, puckle gun. And then, if you really want some uh, some pretty good uh, reading material, and you want to uh, you, you want to learn about something else that would be a little bit more substantial, well, then you should Google the belt and flintlock. It was never actually constructed, but it was presented to Congress. They had working prototypes. And uh, it was a, a flintlock that was invented by Joseph Belton at some time prior to 1777. I'm reading the Wikipedia because it's, a, it's just a wonderful source of information. And, oh, let's see. The musket design was offered by Belton to the newly formed Continental Congress in 1777? Belton wrote that the musket could fire eight rounds with one loading? What? 
Okay, all right, all right. There are no known surviving examples of Belton's musket. The only evidence of his existence is the correspondence between Belton and Congress. Belton described the musket as be, as capable of firing up to, quote, eight balls one after another in eight, five, or three seconds of time at a distance of 25 to 30 yards. He also claimed to have a secret method of modifying this weapon dis- to discharge, quote, 16 or 20 balls in 16, 10, or 5 seconds of time. Historian Harold L. Peterson argued that because it's it was described as having a predetermined number of shots and rate of fire, it may have worked with a single lock igniting a fused chain of charges stacked in a single barrel packaged as a single large paper cartridge. This sounds like a freaking Roman candle! That fired musket balls. And it was presented to Congress in 1777 during the American Revolution. But they ultimately didn't didn't end end up buying it. Now, pop quiz, everybody. What year was the Second Amendment, the entire Bill of Rights, ratified? 1791. Doing some basic non-common core math, 1777 took place before 1791. So to sit there with a straight face and say that you think that the government had no concept of future weaponry means that you have no freaking clue about history. None. None. You want to talk something else? Here's some wonderful history for you. This is a great book. I highly recommend everybody get it. It's called A Patriot's History of the United States by Larry Schweikert and Michael Allen. I'm going to read a little excerpt for, for you talking about the battles of Lexington and Concord. If you own this book, check it out. It starts on page 72. History lesson for everybody because uh, the host of H3, I forget his name, and if he happens to be listening to this, I apologize. Um, but... Uh, he said that he didn't know the answer, and I'm not trying to do this to be a smartass to him, because if he, if, he, he seems like he's actually a, a reasonable guy, because he asks reasonable questions. He is, uh, you know, of the left's mindset, and, you know, just based off of what, uh, what the little, what little bit I do know about him, but he seems like a rational person that can have rational conversation with people. Okay, to, to answer your question as to whether or not Civilians could own cannons. Okay. While all able-bodied males from 16 to 60, including congressional ministers, came out for muster and drill, each each militia company selected and paid additional money to a subgroup, 20 to 25% of its number, to, quote, hold themselves in readiness at a minute's warning, complete with arms and ammunition. That is to say... A good and sufficient firelock, bayonet, 30 rounds of powder and ball, pouch, and knapsack. About this, they were resolute. Citizens in Lexington taxed themselves a substantial amount, quote, for the purpose of mounting the cannon, ammunition, and for carriage and harness of burying the dead. It says the citizens in Lexington taxed themselves... That means they set aside money, not that the government of the city of Lexington uh, 
coerced their tax dollars to pay for this. They taxed themselves, meaning these militia groups came together, put all their money in a pot, and bought some freaking cannons and cannonballs, and set aside money to ensure that whoever didn't live through the skirmish had a proper burial. Learn history. Read history. You can learn so much without saying stupid things that shows how stupid you actually are. It is so mind-numbing that these people get away with telling these lies. And they get away with it constantly. Now, as far as Dan Crenshaw and Donald Trump are concerned, Donald Trump tweeted out that he wants to expand background checks and he wants to throw it into an immigration reform bill, which is how I think it's actually going to happen. It's, it's scary because I, we're going to try and fight like hell against it, but um, it's going to be a difficult battle for sure. And I think that's how he's going to do it. Uh, keep in mind, Trump signed the Fix Nix bill into law. That was uh, that was authored by John Cornyn and thrown into the Omnibus bill in 2017, which Donald Trump signed. And what that did is it bribed states to dump records into the Nix system. Regardless of their accuracy, there was absolutely no repercussions for inaccurate reporting. And if your name was on the list and you weren't supposed to be, you you know you had 90 days or you filed something and, and they were supposed to uh, take care of it in 90 days, but we know that that never happens. Um, so that was signed into law. Donald Trump uh, banned bump stocks because reasons. He has said some things about uh, about suppressors. He doesn't like suppressors, so you could probably imagine a gun control bill that has suppressor language in it. Um even though they're already a pain in the ass to even get. I own one. I got a, I got a couple of tax stamps. And you know what it's like to drop $1,000 on a suppressor that you can't take home for another 11 months until your ATF Form 4 comes back? Uh, I'm sure a few of you, more than a few of y'all do. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's painful. You've paid $1,000 or more for a suppressor that you can't enjoy for 3, 6, 9, 11, in my case, 11 months. 11 months for a gun muffler, for a safety device, because assassins use them. It makes, the, it, makes it sound like a laser. It goes pew, pew, pew. That's what silencers do, because that's what Hollywood told me they do. Even though if you've ever actually used a suppressor, you know otherwise, and that you should probably still wear some hearing protection because uh, it's going to uh, it's going to still going to still uh, hurt. Uh, Sean, you ask answer this: Are you against voter ID? Uh, are you asking me that if I'm against voter ID? If you are, um, no, I'm not against voter ID. Uh, Maybe maybe I missed some context. There's a lot of comments going. On. Man, 143 comments already today. Uh, well, I should, already it's been over an hour. We've been talking about this for over an hour. Um, oh, there's one thing that I forgot to show you guys, and that is 
this going back to Dan Crenshaw and the TAPS Act. This is this bill has been filed. It is in Congress. It was referred to the Subcommittee on Crime, Terrorism, and Homeland Security on March twenty fifth, twenty nineteen. So it's kind of been there for a bit. And if you look down here at co-sponsors, um, co-sponsors, it says 114, 57 Democrats and 57 Republicans. I wonder if Dan Crenshaw is on this list. Let me just do this. C-R-E-N. Oh, look. Re- Representative Dan Crenshaw, Republican, Texas House District 2. He signed on to this bill April 2nd is when he became a co-sponsor. This isn't new, fellas. This isn't new, ladies and gentlemen. Dan Crenshaw is, uh, well, he doesn't value natural rights. That was another thing that I wanted to highlight for you guys. So, uh, uh, okay, so yeah, Sean, you said you are asking me. I am not against voter ID. Uh, voter ID, see, here's the, here's the thing with voting voting is not a natural right voting is a right that is established dependent entirely upon your form of government that you have instituted so if you take a look at the vatican uh they have 1000 citizens and zero people are allowed to vote because of the fact that they're a citizen uh they have no say in who the pope is that is elect uh, that is uh given to a an elector board of cardinals and uh, some other senior people in the Catholic Church. Um, as far as voting in our country is concerned, it, it, it applies the same way. We established voting, and I think that the government should treat it as a right um, because of that's how our form of government works, uh, except for the fact that because it's a governmental right, it was granted by the government, they can establish whatever criteria they want to make you, as far as your qualifications are concerned. So voter ID, if they want to mandate that you have to have a government ID in order to vote, uh, that's perfectly fine, in my opinion. I am not against voter ID. Uh, I'm not quite sure what prompted the question, uh, but I hope I answered it. I think voter ID is fine. I think it should be implemented if we're going to have uh if the especially if the right to vote is based on the fact that you are a citizen and that's the only criteria that's there then absolutely you should have to prove that you meet that criteria uh now on a personal level and i'm not going to speak as you know for lone star gun rights on this this is my personal opinion i think universal suffrage rights have been one of the most detrimental things to liberty that this country has ever put into place uh, I think that personally, in order to be eligible to vote, you must own, not finance, own property, which would exclude me because I don't own my house. Um, so until you owned property outright, deed in hand, uh, I think that should be the criteria, but that's just me. Uh, Heath, if you're just joining us and say, and asking us what's wrong with the TAPS Act, uh, go back and listen, man. I, I know that you'd really like to troll our page and tell us how awful of an organization we are, um, but I'm not going to delve into that again. I went off on a pretty long and epic rant earlier, so if you want to know, go back and listen, and you will learn everything that you ever wanted to know about why the TAPS Act is awful. Uh, anyway, 
I think that that has about done it for me. I am, uh, I am ready. I, 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 I appreciate y'all bearing with me today. Today has been uh, a great show. It has been one that has been filled with rants and some education. I hope y'all learned some things on it that y'all didn't know. Take this knowledge and and share it with everybody that you can. Um, and you know, don't let these people get a pass. Until next Sunday, arm yourself with knowledge and share the ammo.